legend actually has it that the Aztecs witnessed a lightning bolt strike and it hit an agave plant. And after the plant cooled off, they discovered a syrup, like a liquid sort of thing that was oozing out of it. And it kind of smelled and tasted sweet. And what they happened to notice that is that if they left it alone, it fermented by itself and created this really powerful beverage. Welcome to The Dish, the show that uncovers the stories behind the world's most famous dishes. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us and expert guests for tasty facts, foodie secrets and more. In this episode, what is the difference between tequila and mezcal? One of the many differences is the way it is made. Most of the tequilas that you can find in markets are made in an industrial way. They cold press the plus and then they cook the juices and the fibers with steaming autoclaves. But traditional mezcal is made with a much more natural process. Each batch of traditional mezcal is unique and unrepeatable because it's a natural process. Therefore, the yeasts that are going to perform the work of transforming sugar into alcohol are those that are present in the environment. Therefore, whatever types of plants you have around, especially those that are blooming, you're going to have those flavors in your mezcal. Therefore, you can have, I don't know, banana notes. If you have banana trees, you're going to have citrus notes. So you have citrus trees around because if you think of all the complexities you can have in the plants and in the process, you will never find a batch that tastes exactly the same. Plus, have you been drinking mezcal and tequila all wrong? Learn the way the pros drink these spirits. You have to really savor it and you're going to have many flavors just coming around. You're going to have large and really pleasant aftertaste, which you're going to miss if you immediately sip on lime juice or if you take some salt. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Dish. Hello! And of course, in this episode, we're moving away a little bit from food to talk about something that could accompany food or, you know, just something that you could drink. We're talking about mezcal versus tequila. Two famous spirits from Mexico. Tequila, of course, being the one everyone's heard of. Mezcal, perhaps you haven't heard of it, but you should have. I think people will be hearing about it pretty soon in the future. It's definitely growing in popularity. They're hearing about it right now. They are! That's what's happening in this episode. Later on, we'll be interviewing our fantastic expert guest, Rafael from Mezcalateca in Oaxaca. We headed over to Oaxaca in Mexico so that we could actually drink some mezcal with him and interview him. We did a degustation of mezcal. We did. We tried quite a few different ones and we learned a lot about how they make mezcal and why it's different from tequila. But before we get into that, we're going to talk just about tequila for a few minutes because this is the thing that everyone knows about. This is the famous spirit. So maybe let's let's do a bit of information about how tequila came into, into history and, and some crazy facts before we get into the interview. Of course. So yeah, we've all had a shot of tequila probably at some time of our lives. There's not too many people in the world that hasn't had a shot and usually... Maybe five-year-olds. Well, no, people over the legal drinking age, so in Australia that is, and UK that is 18, sucks to be you in the US. I'm so sorry, 21 for you guys. But hey, if you're over that age, even I'm pretty certain if you're over the age of 18, you've had a tequila shot. And it was probably terrible because actually uh, the truth is Mexicans have been keeping a little secret and they're keeping all the best tequila for themselves. 
and some of the bad tequila. That is true. There is some very low quality tequila in Mexico, but there is also some very high quality tequila. That is true. And actually, true tequila is often referred to as being as sophisticated as a good whiskey and should be appreciated as such. You can even get aged tequilas that have been aged in oak. We'll be talking about that sort of stuff a bit later as well. That we will. But first, we need to identify the primary difference between tequila and mezcal. And here is the most confusing part. All tequilas are mezcals, but not all mezcals are tequilas. Confused? To give you a more detailed explanation of what we mean, here is Rafael from Mezcalateca. Mezcal is basically a spirit that is made out of agave or maguey plants. So in that way, tequila is actually a mezcal. It's a mezcal that is made solely from one plant, one specific species of agave, which is called agave tequilana weber or blue agave. And uh, mezcal basically is made from this same plant and also many other plants. We have approximately 20, 20 plus different species, some of which have many varietals. Therefore, we have 40, 40 plus plants that we use to make mezcal. So tequila is solely made from one plant and mezcal could be made from any of the different plants that produce, uh, well, alcohol through fermentation and distillation. So tequila is just another type of mezcal, same as traicilla, which is another type of mezcal also made in Jalisco, and other different mezcales that you can find all over Mexico. So just to clarify once again, yes, all tequilas are mezcals, but most mezcals are not tequilas unless they're made from that blue agave in Jalisco state. Tequila has its own appellation of origin, so if you make a mezcal out of blue agave outside of the state of Jalisco, you cannot call it a tequila. You have to call it a tequilero mezcal or something like that because it has its own appellation of origin. So yeah, it's always it's like champagne. It has to be from that specific place. Exactly. Same goes with mezcal. Mezcal is produced all over Mexico. It's produced in 22 out of 32 different states in Mexico. As of today, only nine states have the appellation of origin, but it's basically a procedure that many states are going through. So eventually, most of them are going to have the appellation of origin. But as of now, only nine states can produce and legally call this spirit mezcal. Just to clarify, Jalisco is a state on the west coast of Mexico, which is where Puerto Vallarta is for people who don't know the area so well. Exactly. It's it's in the west, southwest of Mexico. Okay, so that's the definition of the difference between tequila and mezcal, but there are lots of other differing factors as well between that traditional mezcal and the modern industrialized tequila. So uh, we're going to discuss those as we go through this episode. But first, what about some of the history? While this agave plant has actually been made to create booze since uh, the pre-Columbian Mesopotamian, what is it? Pre-Columbian time. Before the Spanish conquest, they were using agave to make booze. It's not Mesopotamian. What is the word? Mesoamerican. (laughs) It's so much easier to remember. Mesopotamian, that would be the Middle East. Good, good fact-checking. Oh, my goodness. I just wrote down pre-Columbian times, but I actually remembered the other word very badly. Before Spanish conquest, they were making booze out of agave, but they didn't know how to distill spirits. That's true. And That's legend, what was going on. Legend actually has it that the Aztecs witnessed a lightning bolt strike and it hit an agave plant. And after the plant cooled off, they discovered a syrup, like a liquid sort of thing that was oozing out of it. And it kind of smelled and tasted sweet. And what they happened to notice that is that if they left it alone, it fermented by itself and created this really powerful beverage. And that beverage is polke. And polke, of course, is a, a rather dodgy tasting. It's not a hooch because it's lower alcohol. It's sort of like five, six percent. It's like, let's say it's like a gave beer, but it's sort of milky in texture. Mm. It's strange. But, you know, if you don't have any beer and you don't have any vodka or whiskey or anything, what are you going to drink? Well, you're just going to drink polke. Yeah. That's what so, you got. Drink it. So going back to the whole beginning 
conversation, pretty much everything is a poke. Everything is originally a poke. Yeah. Distilled poke is mezcal. <laughs> Jeez, it just gets more confusing all the time. That it does. Are you following us? Are you still following us? But Any, of anyone course, lost there? Uh, since that time, yes, uh, the Spanish did come in in the 16th century and they introduced stills and the distilling process. And this actually came about when they started distilling the agave liquid was apparently when the Spanish conquistadors ran out of brandy. And they were like, what are we going to drink? What are they drinking? Let's give that a try. Let's just distill it. If that's got booze in it, we can distill it or make something. So, bing, bada, boom, tequila. There you go. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about the history of the other types of polke-based beverages later in the interview, because it turns out that might not be the only version of history, Mm -hmm. but that's definitely one of the uh, preferred choices for how it came about. But anyway, all right, so the the history itself is not particularly crazy. No, it's It's not that interesting. It's just like they were making this stuff for years, and then the Spanish came along and distilled it, and then that... Was it? That's just what they've been doing since then. Classic history of booze. Yep. You found booze, you realised it was booze, you kept making it, and then you made it better. I do have some fun facts about the blue agave, though. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, the blue agave... Well, actually, agave in general is a lily and not a cactus. Many people think it's a cactus because it's kind of spiky looking. If you've ever seen one, it... And it grows in the desert. It does. It grows in the desert. It's kind of spiky looking and everything. But no, it is part of the lily family. Crazy. Very weird. The plants actually mature about seven to ten years. It takes seven to ten years for an agave plant to mature, which is why they're actually seeing some serious shortages in Mexico of the blue agave at the moment because it takes so damn long for them to grow. Yeah, in fact, every agave takes a different amount of time to mature. So that one happens to be seven to ten years. There are ones that mature a bit quicker, but they can't be tequila. Because only the blue agave can be tequila. Mm -hmm. We'll be talking about some of the other agaves later on. Uh, Also, generally, an agave plant grows to about five to seven feet. But if you don't touch them and turn them into mezcal or tequila, they can actually grow a spire in the center which is called a quiote, and that can grow as high as 15 feet or about the height of seven baguettes or 15 pieces of spaghetti. That's uh, definitely a good way to describe height Mm -hmm. in spaghetti lengths. Spaghetti lengths. I thought I'd keep it food orientated. Well, yes, why not? All right. So uh, enough about agave. Would you like to hear a little bit about how they process it all to turn it into that delicious... Lecture of the gods tequila. Yes. So, of course, we are uh, mezcal versus tequila. So, right now, we're going to talk about the tequila process. And later on, we're going to talk about the mezcal making process, which is actually quite different. So, yeah. What's the tequila process? Okay. So, the main thing uh, to really understand with harvesting of the agave is that there's actually no machinery used at all. It is back-breaking labor done by Mexican farmers that are called humidors. And these dudes are like... Bolt. They're like rawr, big, like strong men. They're There's a tequila brand called Himidor. There is. Which is spelt with a J for those of you who don't speak Spanish. It's yeah, it's Jim. You can call him Jim for short. Jimidor. Yes. And so once each plant is ready for harvest, they dig them up and they reveal the center part of the plant, which is called a piña. And it's called a piña because the word for pineapple in Spanish is piña and it kind of looks like a pineapple. When you chop off those leaves, which are the spiky bits sitting at the outside, they're actually the leaves. I used to think they made the drinks from those spiky bits. I thought so too. Like you could just like snap it yeah, off snap and they'd it be off like and drink it or yeah, something. But that's no. why people think it's a cactus, I yeah, think. Yeah, they throw them away. Or they use them for something else. I don't know, but I they use know. the middle bit. They cut them off with this really sharp tool called a coa, spelled C-O-A. And they hack away all the leaves till all they have remaining is that piña. And then it's time to cook it. And so they bake 
the pina. It goes into this hot oven. Traditionally, it was baked in like a rock-lined pit, but today, you know, a lot of manufacturers, some do it the traditional way, but a lot of them are just using above-ground ovens to bake them. But also, some producers use a cheaper, even more industrialized process where they cold-press the agave to access the fibers, then steam them to release the sugars ready for fermentation. Yes. So, once the agave is cooked go straight after those juices because they want to grab the juices and ferment them to make the tasty tequila. And usually that's done these days with like these mechanical shredders that just polarize the piñas. And that just allows the juice, which is called mosto, uh, to be collected. There is actually an old school way that you can collect this juice. And it's this large volcanic rock, this huge round rock that they have that's in this stone pit. And it's called a toner wheel. And Traditionally, it used to be pulled by like horses or ox or, you know, stuff like that, buffalo and stuff like that to like sort of ground it around on top of the the pinya to get the juice out. Uh, Today, they do still have those in operation in some of the factories, but they're usually run by tractors or an engine instead of the old poor old horses. I think the the main takeaway so far, as you'll find out through the episode, is this is the industrialized process. This is really what's going on with tequila. This is one of the biggest differences to sort of identify early on is that they have turned it into an industrial process. Yeah. And honestly, from now on, nothing's really too much different from just distilling any other spirit. You take your water and your yeast and you add it all together to convert the, the sugar into the big hooch that you want, which is tequila. Uh, well, you got to ferment it first, then you got to distill it. It's the standard process. Ferment. Ferment first, turn it into the booze, which is something a bit like polke, I'm guessing. And then um, you, uh, you boil that up until it turns into pure alcohol. Yeah, the interesting thing about the yeasts is that many of them have actually been handed down from generations of previous tequila makers. They have very special yeasts that just get handed down from generation to generation. And some of them are really particular about keeping their yeasts happy. Have you ever heard of this before? Happy yeast. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know that this was a thing. According to the Spruce Eats, which is actually where I got a lot of this information from, it's a really fantastic article called How Tequila is Produced. They mention in that article that some of the distilleries actually serenade their yeast with classical music. (laughs) Of course they do. Yes. And apparently San Nicolas, they fill their room with tender instrumental tunes during the fermentation process. Wow, caring for their yeast. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I get it with cows, but I'm not sure that the yeast is really responding to classical music, is it? Apparently, they swear by it. Of course they do. Absolutely insane. So anyway, after these special tender moments between yeasty sugar stuff and its makers, uh, it is time to distill it. And that's actually where a lot of the heavily controlled process comes into action uh, to make it meet the standards of the regulatory council and therefore be able to be called tequila. And then after all this process happens, then they get split into different classifications, some of which you might actually know. So one, We come out with 100% agave, and this is tequila that is produced only from the Weber Blue agave. It has no additives at all. That's it. So it's 100% agave tequila, and that's the one that is said to not give you a hangover. So they claim. So they claim. I don't agree. (laughs) We get big hangovers from tequila all the time, and we always try and buy 100% agave because in Mexico, you can actually get it. Yep. It's easy to get. It's in every supermarket, and yet... I still get hangovers from it because if you drink enough of anything, you're going to have a massive hangover. Seriously. That's true. So the next is just your standard tequila. So that means other sugars and enhancements have been added and blended in, but you actually still have to have 51% of the Weber Blue agave plant sugars included in that. 
That's their very special specification. Alrighty. Would you like some more fun facts on tequila? Give me some facts. All right. A lot of people actually think that it is tequila that you drink with the worm. Everyone knows about the tequila worm? It's not. It's a mezcal worm. Really? Yeah. But it's in tequila. It's, so what's going on? Uh, it's absolutely just marketing bullshit. Uh, complete. Yeah, it, it's always been in the mezcal because the actual worm crawls on the particular agave of the plants that they make mezcal with, but it's not on the blue agave. It it was something that caught on in popularity, so they just started to put them in the bottles. Yeah, makes sense. Also, going on with just a little bit of hoopla that got a little carried away, the worm in the bottle does not and never has given people psychedelic hallucinations. It's not a thing. Apparently, back in the mid-20th century, a whole bunch of Californians started confusing the word mezcal with mescaline, which is actually a naturally occurring psychedelic in peyote. So... Mescal, peyote, everyone knows peyote sends you cuckoo crazy. Yeah, it gives you crazy psychedelic trippy times. Yeah, it was mescaline where they got the words confused. And so everyone's like, whoa, man, the worm in tequila. But it's not because it's mescal. I just told you that. It sends you crazy. It doesn't. So it's not a one-way trip to unicorn land? Nope. Damn. No, no, no. That's a shame. Absolute rubbish. Another interesting thing that you might like to know, they've actually figured out at the University of Mexico how to make artificial diamonds out of tequila. What? Mm-hmm. Why? Well, it's actually something that is used a lot today for electronics and stuff like that because actually they can't make them big enough to turn them into jewelry. They're tiny little diamonds that they make with them. So uh, they use them for a lot of electronics and industrial purposes. Okay. Pretty cool, huh? Very random. You want something more random? Do they get you drunk if you drink these diamonds? I eat, you eat them? I don't know. Uh, I don't think they've done that science. Actually, they probably have, but they, it's not. I didn't find it on the internet. There is also a car that runs on tequila. Well, I mean, you can run cars on alcohol with a bit of modification, right? So, that makes sense. That's true. This is just one car that runs specifically on tequila? No, there's a couple of them still uh, on the planet. I think there's three in existence. One in particular is owned by Jay Leno. Sure. Yeah, as you do. Because surely gasoline is cheaper than tequila normally. So, why would you run it on tequila? Yeah. Because if you get stuck out in the middle of nowhere, you can just drain the tank and get drunk on tequila. (laughs) Why not? That's the main strategy. But he is known to have a really fantastic car collection. So, it actually doesn't surprise me that he has it. It's a uh, a 1964 Chrysler that has been transformed into a crazy tequila chugging vehicle. Good to know. Yeah. Oh, the most expensive bottle of tequila that was ever sold cost 225,000 US dollars. That's too much. I know. So, uh, this was a six-year-old tequila that came in a platinum and gold bottle. And actually, the tequila itself was only worth $2,500. It was the bottle that was worth that money? I don't know. Someone, they wanted the bottle, they wanted the tequila and decided that they were going to spend $225,000 to get it. I feel like this is cheating in terms of a world record fact because that's not the most expensive tequila. It's the most expensive tequila bottle ever sold. 
Well, uh, so, yes, ever sold. Supposedly, there's actually one out there worth $3.5 million, which is a diamond-encrusted version of the same bottle. But I don't think anyone's actually bought that yet. This, this, is, nothing, this is nothing to do with the tequila. <laughs> this is just people making fancy bottles. They could have put whiskey in it. They could have put anything that's in true. it. That's true. Really, that's cheating as far as facts go. But very sadly, on the flip side, the most expensive bottle of mezcal ever sold was only $74,000. Only. Well, I know that's still a lot, but in comparison to the tequila, that's a little sad for mezcal. I think it's real sad because actually mezcal is sort of more interesting than tequila, as we're going to hope to impose upon you as you listen through the rest of this episode and we talk more about mezcal. It's a more interesting spirit. Yeah. Tequila's like the, the kid's version of mezcal, if that's legal to say that. I don't know. <laughs> if kids are drinking 40 proof. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what kids drink these days. <laughs> Whatever it takes to get them to sleep. I was a fan of brandy myself in the olden days, so you know. <laughs> all right, that's it for me and tequila. Did you have any other questions? Did you did I did I fulfill all of your tequila? Well, a lot of the questions that still need to be answered are going to be answered in the next section because we have a very very experienced, super expertised mezcal expert coming up, and Rafael from Mezcalateca is going to talk about. The artisanal process behind mezcal. So we mentioned some of the industrial process and we even mentioned some of the ways that tequila used to be made. Well, with most mezcals these days, they are still being made the way they used to be made. So yes, people are grabbing stuff by hand. They are smashing them up by hand. It's a completely artisanal process. Absolutely, yeah. And unlike these mass-produced tequilas where they try and make them taste the same every time, mezcal, they try to make it taste different every time. That's sort of the thing. Every mezcal has a different story. So one of the things that makes it such an interesting spirit, as well as many other things. So let's move on from tequila and let's get into that interview with Raphael right now. Apologies in advance for a few car noises during this interview, even with a closed door and partway down the Mezcalateca bar, away from the road. Some of the cars and motorbikes in Mexico are just so loud that walls and glass can't stop them. So apologies for that, but hopefully it will not damage your enjoyment of this fantastic information about Mezcal. Hello, I am Rafael Bucio. I am the manager of the tasting room at Mezcaloteca. Uh, we are a project that is devoted to promoting traditional Mezcal. Our final goal is to help the traditional producers, whom we call maestros mezcaleros, to make a decent living out of making mezcal so that they can pass on the tradition of making mezcal in order to be able to support their families through this activity so that we can continue this tradition. This is our ultimate goal. Today we are in the state of Oaxaca, mm -hmm. so maybe you can tell us a little bit specifically about what is happening in Oaxaca in terms of mezcal. Okay, so Oaxaca is, is considered like the cradle of mezcal because even though it is not the only state that produces mezcal, it's the state that produces the most mezcal. It produces approximately 80% of the mezcal that is made in Mexico, and approximately 90% of the mezcal that is exported to other countries. That's the reason why Oaxaca has, has this strong association with mezcal. It's also the state with the greatest diversity of plants, of mezcal-making plants. Therefore, it's the, the state with the greatest diversity of mezcal in terms of plants which it is made from. And how many different types of agave do you actually grow in Oaxaca? Well, there are some species which are native and endemic to Oaxaca, and there are some other species that have been brought into the state of Oaxaca and now are growing in Oaxaca, for example, like espadín, which is not a native plant of Oaxaca, uh, the same as the uh, blue agave or tequilana ware, which is not native to Oaxaca, but also exists in Oaxaca. Aside from that, we have the Karawinski family, which is endemic to Oaxaca, and it has approximately 10, 12 different varietals, like Madre Quiche, Quiche, Cereal, Tripon, Rabioso, and so more. Then we also have Americanas, some of which are native to Oaxaca, like the Asensis varietal, which is commonly known as Arroqueño, 
and also some other like pulquero chino, pulquero ceniz, and some other. Then we have the tobala, and it's commonly known as tobala. We also have uh, cupreata, which is a species that is native to the south uh, east of Mexico. You have it in Oaxaca, in Jalisco, in Guerrero, in the south of Puebla. We commonly know it as, as papalome. In Michoacán, they know it as chino. Uh, in, in Guerrero, they know it as papalote. That's another species we have here. And we also have mexicano, which is a rodacanta. Well, espadín, which is uh, the angustifolia species. We have tepestate, scientifically known as marmorata, which is the species that takes the longest time to mature. And those are the species that grow in Oaxaca. Wow. That's <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. uh, there'll be some notes on the website for some of those names, because I'm sure there was too many to keep up with. So yeah, that link, if you want to check out that information, is foodfuntravel.com slash tequila podcast. One question that comes to mind straight away is there's so many different types of agave. Is it the type of agave that has the most influence on the flavor or is it the way the mezcal is made that has the most influence on the flavor? Well, it's actually both. You can say that in a glass of mezcal, you're going to find mainly two groups of flavors, those that come from the plant and those that come with the process. And of course, in both, we have lots of factors that add up for the complexity of the mezcal. For starters, when we talk about the plant, we have any, any given plant is going to have its own specific characteristics. But uh, depending on where it grows, the climate, the altitude, the type of soil, the type of vegetation growing around the plant is going to influence the final flavor of the plant. So there are many factors involved in what the plant is going to taste like. And then you have the process, which is really, really important because especially with, with young mescales, you can appreciate many things that come with the process and that in a way reflect the terroir, where the plants grow and where the mezcal is made. Because for starters, in a traditional mezcal, well, you have all the factors that come with the plant and then you have the cooking process, which traditionally, it's supposed to be done in a pit oven. It's a pit that you dig deep in the ground, then you heat it up with, uh, with hardwood embers. Of course, the type of wood is going to change a bit of flavor. Of course, the type of soil is going to change a bit of flavor. And the time that you cook the plants for is going to change how it tastes like in the end. So therefore, we have mezcales that are very smoky, so mezcales that are just a tad smoky. But that's, for example, a trademark of mezcal. If it is done traditionally, it's going to be smoky because it's supposed to be cooked in a pit oven with wood, right? Then you have, after the cooking process, you have to grind the plants. And depending on how you grind them, you're going to have a different flavor. If you do it with an industrial blender, it's going to have a different flavor. Traditionally, of course, you don't do that. Traditionally, you do it either in stone meal or by hand with wooden mallets in wooden canoes. Therefore, you're going to have different flavors just because how the grinding process happens. Basically, this is because the finer the grinding is, the more accessible the sugars are going to be in the fermentation. And therefore, in the fermentation, you're going to have different ways in which the process is going to happen. Then you have the fermentation process, which is really, really important for several reasons. The first is the weather. The warmer the weather, the shorter the fermentation. The colder the weather, the longer the fermentation. And just because uh, for the time it takes for the, for the mezcal to ferment or for the agave to ferment, you're going to have different flavors. If the weather is too cold and the fermentation is too long, it's going to take approximately 20, 24 days. And then you're going to have what we call a manolactic fermentation, where you have more acetic acid, then you're going to have flavors like resembling pickles. And then you have some strains of bacteria similar to those that you have in cheeses. There you're going to have dairy notes in a mezcal. So a mezcal that is produced in a cool region is going to have like pickles and cheeses notes. And that's just because of the weather. Then comes where you ferment. The most common way to do it, at least in Oaxaca, is to use wooden bats, and especially willow bats, which uh, are preferred because it's quite neutral in flavor and also because for, for practical reasons. They won't crack after they dry out. But then you can also ferment in cowhide, which is a really interesting way to ferment because you're going to have really strong leathery notes. I mean, it's like more or less those smells that you can feel in a saddle, for example, like or like in a baseball glove. 
those those smells are going to be present in, in your mezcal. You can also ferment in clay containers, you can also ferment in stone containers, so of course this is going to change the flavor of the mezcal. And the third important factor in fermentation is the yeasts, because it's a natural and spontaneous process, therefore the yeasts that are going to perform the work of transforming sugar into alcohol are those that are present in the environment. Therefore, whatever types of plants you have around, especially those that are blooming, you're going to have those flavors in your mezcal. Therefore, you can have, I don't know, banana notes. If you have banana trees, you're going to have citrus notes. If you have citrus trees around, you're going to find like spices like um, I don't know, licorice. You're going to find uh, perhaps cinnamon. You're going to find perhaps clove. Perhaps you're going to find... I don't know, depending on what you have around. So fermentation is really important for this reason. So it's actually the step of the process that best reflects the tawa, where the mezcal is. So this is already a very organic sort of process compared to where tequilas are made in factories. And exactly. they, don't, they don't taste of smoke. They don't have any of these. Because the smoke, we didn't mention exactly, but the smoke does come from the... They, they smoke the agave before they start fermentation, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That, that's precisely it. And that's perhaps the, the biggest difference with, with tequila. And of course, with those mezcales that are made industrially. Most of the tequilas that you can find in markets are made in an industrial way. And the process is different because what they do is they, they cold press the plant and then they cook the juices and the fibers with steaming autoclaves. Mm. Therefore, the flavor changes and it's not smoky unless you have to put some other thing extra to add the smokiness in that flavor. So, of course, that's perhaps the most important difference be between mezcal and tequila, the way in which it is in which it's made. You can also find some mezcales that are made industrially in this fashion, but of course, they are going to miss many of the flavors that come with the process and that reflect the tawa of the mezcal. In the industrial process, they're using artificial yeasts whereas in the natural, organic, artisanal process, they are waiting for natural yeast to come in. Is that a difference or is it also... Well, yeah, that's actually quite important because in the traditional process to make mezcal, you don't use anything other than the primary that you use to make mezcal, which is the agave. And everything just happens naturally. Everything is handmade. You don't have any machines involved. You don't have any kind of additives or chemicals involved, which is a very common practice to do in the food industry, for example, to add uh, ammonium sulfite for fermentation. So you have like a greater production of sugar and then you have like faster fermentations. That's something that you would never be using in a traditional uh, method of making mezcal. So of course, that's a very important thing. And that's one of the reasons why you have this myth, which is actually in a way scientifically backed, that says that mezcal won't give you a hangover, which is in a way true for two reasons. The first is because it's a completely natural organic process. And the other reason is because the sugars of agave are more, they're simpler, they are not that complex. Therefore, they are easier to process for the liver. So even though you can get drunk and of course get dehydrated after drinking a lot of mezcal, you're not going to be completely destroyed because it's a more or less natural organic drink. Still alcohol, but it's like a more or less healthier alcohol to drink. So it's more if you drink way too much that you get a bit of a hangover rather than if you just drink it at a normal amount. <laughs> yes, but it won't be as bad as if you drank something else in the same amount. Yeah, So, but the industrialized versions don't have that quality and you could still get a hangover from and, that. And you can feel it actually what you're drinking. When you drink mezcal, I mean, you, you do feel the effects of the alcohol, but you don't get this intoxication feeling. You don't feel like dizzy and nauseous because... You're lacking all these chemicals in there. So yeah, a note on hangovers. We've heard these stories from so many natural alcohols around the world. It won't give you a hangover. Ball! Yeah, we've had plenty of hangovers from all of these non-hangover alcohols. Yeah, the worst coming from Mescal, which actually ended in a three-day 
hangover. I don't know if I've ever had one that bad. I know I'm not as young as I used to be, but dang. I've never had a three-day hangover from anything. I mean, it could be because the mezcal we were drinking had a scorpion in it. <laughs> that was actually my favorite one. Yeah, but it did not uh, It did not end well with the scorpion mezcal. No, I'm going to say it was the sheer quantity that we actually happened to drink that day, which was... A lot. Yeah, pretty much anything can give you a hangover. So maybe the general gist here is that if you drunk the same quantity of low quality tequila versus artisanal mezcal, you would be much less likely to have a hangover with the mezcal than the tequila. That's pretty much where we're going with this, I reckon. All right, so the fermentation process obviously isn't the final step because uh, mezcal is a very strong spirit. Maybe you can tell us about the, the distillation process and about how strong these mezcals actually are. Yeah. Well, the distillation, of course, is a process in which you separate the water from the alcohol to obtain a higher volume of alcohol. This is something that could be made also in different ways and also reflects the terroir and the culture and the history of the place where the mezcal has been made. Mostly it is distilling copper stills like pretty much every other spirit in the world. But also, especially in the region of, in some regions of Oaxaca, people distilling clay pots. It's the same principle, but instead of using copper pots, they use clay pots. And instead of using copper uh, cooling tubes, they use hollow reeds in order to collect the mezcal and cool it down. So, of course, when you have a mezcal uh, sti- uh, distilled in a clay pot, you're going to have different flavors. It's going to be more, it's going to be more like subdued. It's going to be earthier. It's going to have, uh, it's going to be softer in a way. As compared to a mezcal that was distilled in copper, which is, I know, it's a bit hard to describe, but I would describe it as, as kind of like shiny, intense, electric kind of flavors. So yeah. that, of course, also is present in the final flavor of the mezcal. And then, especially in the western part of Mexico, you have some steels, which we call Filipino steels, which are like hybrid. They are made out of copper and wood. And they are called Filipino steels because uh, it's believed that, uh, from, that, sorry, that distillation was a technique that was actually brought to Mexico by the Filipinos. So that leads us to a very important question about mezcal. What's the origin of mezcal? When was mezcal originally being produced? This is a question that we get asked a lot, and the truth is that we don't really know exactly. There are several theories, all of them have their merits, so uh, basically this is how it goes. The official version says that mezcal was produced after the Spanish conquest because uh, the original inhabitants of this country didn't know the technique to distill. Uh, so this is how the official version goes. There's another theory that says that mezcal is actually a pre-Hispanic beverage, that distillation was known before the arrival of the, of the Spaniards, and it was done precisely in clay pots. There has been findings of uh, archaeobotanical traces where people have found uh, cooked agave plants in clay pots that are really, really old, as old as eight or 10,000 years. We don't really know exactly what they were doing, if they were just cooking the agave to eat it, or they were actually distilling. So it's a bit difficult to, uh, to maintain that mezcal is a pre-Hispanic uh, beverage, unless we get enough archaeological and ethno-historical uh, evidence. But still, there's a possibility that mezcal was made before the Spaniards came. And the third version says that it was actually the Filipino slaves that were freed from the Spaniards who taught uh, the people how to distill agave in the same way that they distilled a coconut to make their own spirits. So these are the three versions that we have. And who knows? I mean, we still have to keep researching and find which is... The, the correct version. And I guess as time goes on, more archaeological evidence keeps getting discovered. Yeah, exactly. But in the end, I mean, it would be really interesting to find out exactly when mezcal began to be produced. 
But it's interesting also because mezcal is a, is a beverage, it's a spirit that is changing. It changes and it adapts to the context where it's present, where it's uh, drunk. Uh, it adapts to the customs and to the preferences of the people who drink it. For example, in a very purist uh, sense, mezcal should always be drunk young. It shouldn't be aged in wood. The reason for this is because when it is young, it better expresses everything that we were talking about. It better expresses the terroir in terms of the plant and the process. When you age a mezcal in wood, the flavors of the wood are going to dominate over the flavors of the plant. And you're going to miss many of the nuances that come with the different plants and the processes. Therefore, it's why uh, the more purist people are going to say that mezcal should be drunk young. Uh, you might agree with this or not. That's, of course, something that uh, only you can decide. But if you like a mezcal that is aging wood, nobody can tell you you're wrong because, well, personal preference is irrevailable. But uh, still, this reflects the history of mezcal because uh, mezcal originally was stored and transported in clay pots, which are quite fragile, so they were very easily broken. And of course, you had like uh, through evaporation, you would miss lots of the mezcal. So people found that it was a lot more practical to store and transport the mezcal in the same wooden vats that the Spaniards brought in order to store and transport the wine and the brandy. Therefore, mezcal in a way evolves with the history of the people, with the history of the country. Now, for example, mezcal is traveling, is becoming famous, is going places like New York and Tokyo and Singapore and so forth. And of course, it's transforming itself as well. It's becoming a beverage that is quite popular for cocktails, for um, mixologists. It's a very interesting drink to, to mix because of its smokiness and strong flavors. So people are finding new ways to drink mezcal. And that's, of course, well, something that should happen to mezcal because it's something that comes with culture and culture is always ever-changing. Yeah, we love mezcal cocktails. I think this is like my new favorite type of cocktail. Mm, agreed. Yeah, so one of the ones that we had when we were in Oaxaca had mezcal on it, which gave it that smoky flavor. It had pineapple in it, which gave it the sweet flavor. And it had liquor 43, which is a Spanish spirit that's made with loads of floral herbs. So good. 43 types of herbs and spices, in fact, which just gives it this crazy dimension. And then a bit of lime for sourness. And sometimes they even throw some salt in. Or one of the cocktails we had, they put chapulinas on top. Crickets! Crickets. Deep fried crickets. Very popular in Oaxaca. And in a cocktail, they add that fifth flavor profile yeah and it's not something to be grossed out by they're really just salty crispy yum it's actually really adds to all of those that flavor profile that they were working on with the cocktail and made it really fantastic yeah you just don't get cocktails that have that extra element the smoke element doesn't exist so when you've blended a cocktail with all those different flavors it's just a winner we love mezcal cocktails found really interesting the citrus came with the spanish as well do you have any idea why mezcal is sipped with a slice of orange and tequila is with a piece of lemon or lemon? lime yeah tequila and mezcal is a spirit that is traditionally very strong it's a spirit that you normally adjust to at least 45 percent in alcohol volume. That means that a traditional mezcal and for that matter a traditional tequila is always at least 90 proof. So this is really high and for some palates this is too strong. So that's one of the reasons why the añejos and reposados are so popular because not that many people are used to these strong flavors. So of course these softer, sweeter versions that have these woody flavors are, are more uh, easy or they are easier to enjoy by a wider public. 
So right then, Raphael mentioned two terms, añejo and repasado. These are the different ways that mezcal and tequila are left to age, and they do affect the way that those drinks taste on the palate. They make it a little bit easier, in fact, to drink those. Once you've aged them, maybe in oak or something, uh, it does improve. Improves the wrong word. It changes the flavor, and it makes it a bit softer. That's true, because if you speak to any tequila or mezcal aficionado, they will say Blanco all the way. Yeah, they like it rough and ready so they can taste every little element of the tequila or the mezcal. So essentially, just for now, reposado means rested. So this means it's aged for a very short time. Añejo means aged specifically, and it is aged for a much longer time. But we'll be going into that again a little bit more later in the interview. Also, for the same reason, people are used to, in a way, pairing it with something like lemon and salt which is something that was uh, first introduced in the tequila world. Tequila became popular and, and a big thing a lot before than mezcal. So the oranges and the warm salt or the chili salt that we so common with mezcal are in a way a copy of what happened with mezcal. You can have mezcal with whatever you want. But of course, if you have a sip of mezcal and then you take a little bit of, of lemon or lime, then you're going to miss many of the flavors, especially because when you drink a mezcal, you have to really savor it, and you're going to have many flavors just coming around. You're going to have large and really pleasant aftertaste, which you're going to miss if you immediately sip on lime juice or if you take some salt. So, of course, you can have it the way you want it, but if you really want to understand a mezcal, you have to only drink the mezcal, drink it straight, sip by sip, and try to savor it and try to find as many flavors and aromas as you can because there are some mezcales that are really complex that are changing, they're going to have different flavors in your mouth, they're going to have different aftertastes. So it's important to try to really sip it, try to really savor it, and try to really find everything that you can find in the mezcal. Can you talk us through the correct way to sip a mezcal? Well, yes. I mean, a mezcal is, is, is a full sensory experience. The first thing is to see the mezcal. You have to look for the color, especially if you want to really enjoy a mezcal and all of its flavors. You have to see that it's transparent, crystal clear, pretty much like water to make sure it's a young mezcal. Second thing you have to do is you have to shake your bottle and try to see if there are some bubbles that form in the surface of the bottle and then they linger for a while and disappear after forming a string around the edge. These bubbles, which we call pearls in the mezcal world, they are basically an indication that your mezcal was adjusted to at least 45% in alcohol because the volume of alcohol is going to change the surface tension and then it's going to be able to return the oxygen for a while. So you have to shake your bottle and try to see that these bubbles form and linger for a while, for some seconds and then disappear. If not, if you see no bubbles forming, it means that your mezcal is below 45%. And what happens below 45% is that you don't have a good preservation of flavors and aromas. So therefore, you're not going to get like a full experience of all the possibilities, all the expressive possibilities that the agave can have in a mezcal. So that's the second important thing. Then when you pour your mezcal, what we always do is a test of quality. We take a drop of mezcal from the glass with the tip of our finger and rub it in our hands. Upon evaporation, we smell, and the smell that you're going to get is the sweet, smoky smell, which is the smell of the cooked plants of agave. This basically tells us that our mezcal was made 100% of agave, because if you send something else, like industrial alcohol or sugarcane alcohol, that means that your mezcal was adulterated with these alcohols, and you should not drink it, because mezcal is supposed to be 100%. Then you should smell your glass and compare what you found when you were rubbing the mezcal in your hands and what you have in your glass because you're going to have some similar aromas but something else. And then you have to keep in mind those smells because your mezcal might taste similar or might taste really different. That's something that could happen with mezcal. It might be quite similar in flavor and aroma or quite different, which is interesting. 
And then the third thing is to begin sipping your mezcal. Since a mezcal is really strong, it's really high in alcohol content, what you first have to do, especially if you're not used to these strong spirits, is to take a small sip of mezcal and swish it all around your mouth so that it can impregnate everywhere in your tongue, your gums, your palate and your throat. And here you're not going to really enjoy the flavors of the mezcal, but this is going to prepare you to properly appreciate the flavors and aromas of the mezcal. This is to mitigate the strength of the alcohol and then in the next sips where you're going to try to retain the mezcal in your mouth and try to uh, find the sweet, the sour, the acidic with the different regions of your tongue and then that's how you sip a mezcal. After drinking it, you, you breathe in and out a couple times so that you can get the aftertaste, which has, is, is the, the aromas that return from your stomach, and then you can find the more subtle notes of the mezcal when you breathe it out. So that's the, the proper way to, to sip a mezcal, pretty much like you would with a wine or, or whiskey or anything else. Wow. So you mentioned a few terms as we went through the last few minutes, uh, things like reposado, añejo, uh, young, mezcal. Maybe you can explain the difference between all these different styles and which ones people should be looking for. Yeah, well, of course, what you should be looking for is whatever uh, you like best. So the best thing with mezcal, the best approach is to try as much as you can, and then you can find what's your preference in terms of plants, in terms of processes, and in terms of how you finish your mezcal. That could take a lifetime. <laughs> I've seen all the mezcal here. It's a lot. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, we actually say that each batch of mezcal, at least of traditional mezcal, is unique and unrepeatable. Because if you think of all the complexities that you can have in the plants and in the process, you will never find a batch that tastes exactly the same. It doesn't matter if it's the same plant, the same producer, the same time of the year. It's always going to be different. So, of course, it's endless. But more or less, you can find a stable profile in the plants, a stable profile in the process, a stable profile in the regions. So you can choose, you can decide if you prefer, for example, a cupreta from Guerrero distilled in copper, if you prefer a tobala from Oaxaca distilled in clay. That's something that you should find out. And of course, the way to do it is to try as much as you can in terms of plants, regions, and processes. And then, you can choose, of course, what you like. Uh, a, tequila, a tequila or a mezcal that is joven or young, it's going to be transparent and crystal clear, and it's the one that is going to best reflect the terroir and the process. But of course, you might like the woody flavors that come with the aging, so then you can find añejos and reposados. Reposados are those mezcales that are aged in wood for something in between three to six months, and then you can find the reposados where they age in between six months and two years. Of course, it's, uh, it's going to have a completely different flavor profile, but it's a matter of personal preference to decide what you like. Then you can find mezcales that are infused with something else. This is something that is traditionally used as me traditional medicine. You infuse mezcal with different herbs uh, or with different things, for example, like garlic, in order to make a really powerful and, savor and flavorful antibiotic. You can have it infused with uh, rosemary and rue, which is used for uh, stomach ailments and so forth. But many people drink these mezcales just because of the flavor, because they, they like how it tastes infused with herbs. Uh, you can find mezcales with a worm inside. Actually, there's many people who believe that mezcal always comes with a worm, which is not the case, but it's something that does happen. And if you like these flavors, because of course the mezcal that has a worm is going to have the flavor of the worm, then of course then you know that's how you like your mezcal with and the worm inside. Sort of a salty. Can you explain the flavor of the worm? Is that possible, or you have to have tried it to? You have to, to try to to, to, com to completely know how it tastes. But uh, actually, the worm it's it's uh, it's uh, the larva of a plant that eats uh, the roots of the agave. So it more or less has these flavors, these, these like rooty, earthy notes that you might find also in mezcal without warm because sometimes you get those flavors in a mezcal. But it's quite distinctive. It's, it's, it's like you immediately know once you've tried a worm, you immediately know that flavor. But it's difficult to describe for the people who haven't had it. So 
Yeah. There's a story that goes around that if you eat the worm, uh, it gives you like a hallucinogenic effect. Is this at all true or is it completely a myth? No, it's totally a myth. Uh, it's totally a myth. Uh, actually, there are some other properties that are attributed to the worm in the mezcal, which are not true. And this is not true for mezcal in general. There's people who believe that mezcal contains uh, mescaline, which is the psychoactive substance that comes in POE. Mezcal doesn't have any mescaline. So if you're looking for that, well, <laughs> sorry, you won't find it. And if you're afraid because of the reason, okay, it's safe to drink mezcal. All right. Well, that's good to know. And there's another one that we had, and I don't know if there's a special name for it, but we actually had a mezcal with a scorpion in the bottle. Mm -hmm. And does the scorpion give a crazy flavor? I, mean, I couldn't tell. I'm not really experienced enough in drinking mezcal to know the difference, but it was just unusual to see that. Yeah, of course, it, it changes the flavor because anything that you put inside a mezcal bottle is going to change the flavor because of the high volume of alcohol that you have. Anything that goes inside the bottle is going to be absorbed into the mezcal. Of course, the scorpions are going to give a special flavor to the mezcal. And the scorpion basically is like a, a derivation of the worm. And uh, it's basically something that people began doing, well, in a way, just to make something that looked more interesting, perhaps for marketing reasons, perhaps just for, I don't know. Uh, it looks pretty badass when you've got a bottle. Yeah, yeah of course. It looks good on the table. <laughs> of course, definitely. So I actually remember there was this brand that used to say that uh, worm is for men and scorpion is for machos or something okay. like that. So, <laughs> so let's talk about some of your favorite mascals and maybe some of the best ones for beginners to try. So first of all, if you were going to choose one, give us one that you love and a reason why you love it. Well, I mean, it's difficult because, like we were saying, each batch is always unique and repeatable. So you might think that you don't like a particular kind of plant, but then you can find a batch that surprises you and you fall in love with. At the same time, you can think you love a plant, but then you can find a batch that you don't really like that much, so you're going to be disappointed. Personally, I have a story with Tobala. Tobala was the first uh, good traditional mezcal that I came across in my life. So for that reason alone, it's one of the mezcales that I always want to try because I have this history with, with uh, Tobala. Don't worry if you're not picking up on all of these specific terms that we're talking about. We've actually explained each of the terms and name in full in the article that's accompanying this episode. Uh, so check that out at foodfuntravel.com slash tequila podcast and you'll get a full on explanation about everything that we're talking about right here. I also love Tepestate, which is the most complex of the mezcales that we can find because complexity in general terms comes with the time it takes for the plants to mature. So for example, an espadín, especially when it is farmed, it only takes something between three to five years to mature. Whereas a Tepestate is going to take approximately 35 years to mature. So all these years that a plant is sitting in the, in the earth absorbing information through the roots, well, this is going to translate into flavors and aromas when you make a mezcal. So a tepestate is always going to be special because it's going to be complex, deep, flavorful. Each sip is going to be different. So, of course, you can always find a tepestate that you like or that you don't, but you will always see how special it is, how complex it is. You can actually feel each of those 30, 35 years of, uh, of growing in a, in a tepestate. That's why people say that uh, mezcal is actually born aged. Because, yeah, the plants have been growing for so long that you don't need to do anything else to the mezcal to make it good. And it's actually something that makes the mezcal or a tequila different to all other spirits or actually any other alcoholic beverage. Because if you think of wine, if you think of whiskey, if you think of anything else, those are only yearly crops. But with tequila and mezcal, these are plants that take sometimes decades. Yeah, so all of the work is done before you even ferment, and then you ferment and depend within like a, a week or um, we say 30 days, up to 30 days for Or, or even more, because if, if you cook for a week 
and then you ferment for a couple of weeks and then you distill for another two, three, four, five days. It can take something in between 20 to 30 days. So, yeah, it's, it's also a long process. There's It's a lot of work. It's a lot of hard work. I mean, just to harvest the plant and carry the, the piñas, as we call the heart of the plant, which is a part that you used to make mezcal, to carry them from wherever you harvest them to the factory, which we call a palenque, is really, really a hard and strenuous labor because sometimes the plants grow like in rocky, steep hillsides, which is quite difficult to cut and, and to, to bring back. And some of these are going to weigh 100, 200, 300 kilos. So for us, just to carry the plants to the palenque is a lot of work. Then the smashing and everything, it's really a, a lot of work. Well, wow. so when we think, because I mean, instantly assumed that it was the spiky bits of the agave that they were using, but it's not. It's actually the heart of the plant that's the main part of making this. Yeah, cow. it's the heart of the plant. With some plants, you can use uh, the leaves. Uh, uh, there are some maestros making mezcal solely from the leaves of just a couple of varietals, but in general terms, what you use is the heart of the plant. That's something we call the piña, because it more or less looks like a pineapple once you shave away the leaves and the roots. Oh, wow. Yeah, so yes, that middle bit, you cut off all those outer bits and you just left with this center part. Exactly. Which you don't see until you've cut everything off. So, exactly. Yeah, we've seen all these plants around and I just didn't really even think about that. Nope. That's kind of amazing. And so if someone was to come here to your mezcaleria and try a mezcal for the very first time, what would you serve them? Well, first, when somebody comes to Mezcaloteca, we ask them what they drink, what they like. So depending on what things they like, for example, if people like gin, perhaps we're going to choose a mezcal that is rich in herbal notes to begin with because it's going to be easier to relate to because they are coming from, well, the personal history of, of things they'd like to eat and drink. Uh, if they tell us that they prefer sweeter things or they drink wine or they drink whiskey or beer, well, we try to find something that's going to be like a, like a good thing to begin, that is going to be similar or the closest to the things that they normally drink so the transition is going to be softer. Normally what we do is we give something that is more or less like easier to understand, something not that complex. Of course, that depends on, on the people. If, if there's people who already know that Mezcal and Common have very specific requests, so basically we just give them what they want. But if somebody that doesn't know that much and wants to know, we give them something more or less simple like, a, like an Espadín, perhaps a Karawinski, then perhaps we're going to give them something made from an Americana Brighta, like perhaps an Arroqueño, perhaps a Tobala. And then we can give them a blend, we can give them a Tepestate, we can give them something from a different region, something from Jalisco, from Michoacán. Um, so, yeah, that depends on, on, on the person, basically. I didn't even think of that. You, you can take two mezcals, blend them together, and that's actually something that's happening. You know, it's not always pure one agave. People are mixing things. That's actually the way in which mezcal was originally made, because uh, the maestros mezcaleros back in the day, they would gather anything that they had matured when they were going to make mezcal, so they wouldn't think of how many or what types of plants. Just anything that was matured, and then they would uh, cook it together, ferment it together, distill it together. Then the single varietal was a, a trend of actually the last century, the mid-20th century, which is actually a very good thing because now we know which plant and what it is, how it tastes like, what's its personality, its texture, its aroma. But blends have always been the original way in which mezcal was made. And it's always interesting to drink blends because always you're going to have more flavors, it's going to be more complex because you have more plants. And it's always going to be surprising because you will never know how it's going to behave. Sometimes the blends can be really dynamic, sometimes they can be really structured, sometimes they can have like a really low, like slow evolution in your mouth, they're going to change 
slowly into something else and sometimes they're going to be really dynamic so you can have all these flavors just coming around like a roller coaster in your mouth so it's always a surprise with the blends hmm. and the blending is always done at the fermentation stage not after it's been distilled everything happens together you cook the plants together you grind them together you ferment them together you distill them together yeah, so yeah it's like having a big cooking pot and just Throwing everything Throwing stuff in and seeing what you get out the other end and experimenting. Exactly. exactly. That's interesting. That's pretty much like it was, for example, with wine. Same thing happened. People would use like a, all, the, all the grapes together and then they start identifying the different varietals and well, making like a single variety wines and then blends with a purpose, with a percentage. With mezcal, normally people just gather whatever they have. Or if, if they made two batches of a single plant and then they have some leftovers and they want to make another batch, perhaps they're going to take whatever they had left. So it could be an 80% or a 20% or 50% of whatever plants. But it's always going to be interesting. So, uh, yeah. Is the production knowledge now then at a point where people can actually predict if they put this, this, and this in one batch, they know what they're going to get out at the end, or is it still experimentation? It's, it's a lot of experimentation. You never know exactly what's going to happen. And also because, well, depending on how you fill up the oven and how the plants cook, and of course, each plant behaves different in the fermentation batch. So, yeah, it's nearly impossible to know exactly what's going to happen. And how much does price play a part when it comes to mezcals? Or is it, as you've been saying, that it's just really down to personal preference? Like, you could really just love, like... A cheap one. A cheap mezcal, or, or you can have, like, and really not like a you know, expensive one. Yeah, I mean, for example, if we if we stick to the realm of traditional mezcal, the price ranges are going to vary because of some factors. The main one is going to be the plant. Those plants that take a shorter time to mature, in general, they're going to be in the lower price range. Uh, those plants that take a long to mature are going to be in the higher price range. Also, you have to think of how scarce the plant is. If it is a rare plant, that it's a, such like an abundant plant. Of course, those mezcales are going to be more expensive because you're not going to have like uh, continuous batches of those plants. Like for example, with uh, I don't know, with the javali, with the tepestate itself. So uh, that's going to be the, the the primary way to price a mezcal, the plant that is made from. Then also depending on the labor, for example, if it is smashed by hand, it's normally going to be pricier because you have to consider that in order to make one liter of mezcal, you have to use, in average, 10 kilos of plants, sometimes up to 15 kilos of plants. So if you have a batch of, for example, 200 liters, which is a small batch, like the traditional batches are that more or less that size, imagine to smash by hand to two or 3,000 kilos of plants, three tons of plants smashed by hand to make a batch of mezcal is a lot of work, therefore it's going to be pricier because it's a lot more labor. And the third factor is going to be the time that the mezcal has been bottled for. And this is really interesting because once you bottle a mezcal in glass, the mezcal is going to change and it's going to evolve and it's going to get more balanced and round and the flavors are going to be more accessible. This is what we call a matured mezcal, a madurado mezcal. After two years resting in glass, the mezcal is going to be called madurado, mature. Of course, the longer the mezcal has been sitting on a glass, the higher the price is going to be. Normally, for each year of this process, you're going to find like a higher price in the mezcal. So these are going to be the three main factors to find the price in a mezcal. So you can find, for example, an espadín, which is going to be generally the, in, the, in the lowest price range, versus a tepestate, which is going to be in the higher price range. Both are going to be the same quality, but because of all these reasons, the prices are going to be different. If you happen to like espadinas, well, that's fantastic because you're going to save a lot of money. <laughs> but if you happen to like the pestat as well, you're going to have to save money in order to enjoy the mezcal that you like. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was time for us to taste some mezcal. Woo! 
It is seriously powerful stuff. And it's got a whole level of complexity that's a bit closer to a fine scotch than it is to a rough old tequila that you might be expecting. One of the mezcals we tried actually had hints of beetroot. Yeah, that was really interesting. But the most powerful flavor that always seems to come through, of course, is the smoke. That's really what defines mezcals over those tequilas. That's the biggest difference on the palate. It's always got that smoky flavor because the production process differs. Although they may bake or boil the piña when they're making tequila, they always smoke it when they're making mezcal. And of course, the most important thing is to sip a good mezcal. Do not shot it. No. No, and definitely no citrus fruit or salt with it. That's only for really low quality or industrial produced ones. I know people do prefer that little slice of orange on the side, but oh no, just have it in its purest form. This is uh, definitely the quality you want to set because that would be such a waste to down the shot of this. It's Absolutely. Of course, of course. Very I mean, and also you think that, for example, that Tovalao, this verde itself, took something between 15, 20 years to mature then to just uh, destroy those flavors by, uh, for example, aging it in wood or by just downing it without enjoying it. It's a crime against, well, nature itself. Uh, if people do want to come and drink mezcal with you, learn more about it and, uh, and actually get to taste these things we've been talking about, how do they do that? Well, uh, we work on the reservations because uh, we normally have uh, two or three hosts that are going to give you a personal attention. So we want to make sure that we're going to be there for you. That's the reason why we ask for people to make a reservation. Of course, we always welcome walk-ins, provided that we have uh, the availability. But in order to ensure your place, we recommend that you make a reservation. You can do it through our website. Um, you can also uh, do it through our Facebook page you can also uh, well, uh, give us a, a telephone call and we're going to reserve your place and it's going to be an experience that is going to last approximately 40 to 60 minutes you're going to get to try different mezcales from different plants, regions, processes and we're going to try to well, make our best to answer all your questions to share everything that we know to share our passion to share uh, well, a bit of uh, what uh, our experience with mezcal is and when you walk into this place, I mean, as soon as I walked in, I was like, it's almost like walking into an archaeologist's office. It's like the Indiana Jones of Mescal sort of room. You've got those little green lamps on the table that you'd see on old desks in, in universities in the 1930s. It's all dark wood and um, dark painted walls. And the bottles are up on the shelves as if they're artifacts. So it's, yeah, it's more like an archaeology place than a bar, but it's, it's fantastic. You get this whole feeling that you're going to learn something if you come in here. It's not just about the drinking. Yeah, I, I love the way in which you described it, uh, but um, I wouldn't say archaeology because archaeology are dead and past. And Mescal is pretty much alive and ever-changing and evolving and, and it's thriving. But I do get the feeling. And actually Mescaloteca is a project that was born uh, wanting to... To educate, it was basically an educational purpose that Mezcaloteca was made for. Actually, the name comes from Biblioteca, which is a name for library in Spanish. So we wanted to make a library of Mezcal. So then we came up with a Mezcaloteca. That's where the name came from. That's why you see all the bottles on display on shelves as if they were books that you can take and read. Because that's exactly what we want people to do, to come here, to have a grasp of how deep and wide the universe of Mezcal is. And then to, well, sip a couple of things and see what more or less what mezcal can be and so that can people choose and find something that they ideally love. Awesome. And of course, you can come here and get instruction in English or in Spanish. Also in French. 
more information on booking a visit to Mezcalateca so that you can go and taste all these wonderful mezcals and learn some more about the whole process and meet Raphael and his team, uh, you can go to the show notes right now at foodfuntravel.com slash tequila podcast and you can find out more about how to book that experience. In Oaxaca. In Oaxaca, Mexico. The home of mezcal. Oh, it is, yes. It really is the place where they make the most. That is the end of this episode. Mezcal versus tequila. I hope you have figured out the difference because if you haven't, we've failed quite epically. If you have figured out the difference, then please go and leave us a five-star review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. Some five-star living. Because that will help us get new listeners for this show, which means we can keep the show on the air. The more listeners we get, the more episodes we can make and the more likely we are to continue creating the Dish podcast. And if you don't think the show is worth five stars, there's loads of other shows out there to listen to. Why are you spending your time listening to us? So hopefully you love the show and hopefully you'll go and give us a five-star review and get us some more loving from some more uh, more listeners. Also remember to drop by and grab all the show notes and the explanations of the things we were talking about today at foodfuntravel.com slash tequila podcast. And you can also become a patron at foodfuntravel.com slash extras. If you want to help support the show, this will help us make even more episodes getting new listeners is good but if we can actually get patrons supporting the show as well then that means we can commit a lot more time to doing podcasting rather than our regular blogging work it'll also support some of our travel costs as well we gotta go to these places we gotta try these things it's a hard life it is we gotta go eat tasty food and drink tasty beverages well maybe it'll just pay for my liposuction in five years time that might be necessary so yes you can support us at foodfuntravel.com slash extras from as little as $1.50 a month month until our next episode do check out any of our past episodes if you haven't checked them out yet if you go to mexico we've got one on the yucatan region and tacos and we've got a double episode on the history of tacos so lots of mexico information you can go and check out that's already published and of course new episodes from the dish are coming soon thanks for listening to the dish Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.